Kaf Zayin Elul, Taf Shin Ayin Zayin, coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York. I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Beautiful way to start up a new show, a new day, a new year. Mode Ani, Gabriel Tombak, with that uh, beautiful song. 
Welcome one and all. Welcome in to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Weingarten. We're here each and every Monday immediately following JM and the AM. 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Israel Time, and wherever you are around the world, whatever time it is that you're listening, now is, that's the time. That's the time that we're on, live. And of course, you can listen on demand via the Nachum Siegel Network app, which is available for free for iPhone and Android in their respective stores. And um, on the website, NachumSiegel.com, under the archives. Just go to the archives. Look for the Israel Show, and you can uh, listen to um, four-plus years' worth of stuff, and today's show, and yesterday's show. No, there wasn't a show yesterday, last week's show. Um, we will continue to talk about the hunt for Yosef uh, Mengler. We have some really fascinating audio. I think probably one of the only times, to- well, there are two times that I found that um, the son of Yosef Mengele, Rolf Mengele, gave an interview. One of them was uh, just a one-on-one interview. The other was on uh, an episode of uh, the now-defunct Donahue talk show, where he appeared together with the author of a book on Mengele and a Nazi hunter himself, um, Mr. Posner. And it was very interesting. And we'll play some clips, hopefully, of that. You should see, get an idea, what the son of this Nazi... Angel of Death is what they called him. I guess we should, we could use that terminology as well. What he, um, what his son had to say, in uh, hindsight and retrospect, we. Um, I do want to mention before we get to uh, the next song that yesterday in Yerushalayim there was a, a protest of. Um, a uh, group of Haredi young men, they were protesting the whole situation with the draft specific in Israel, where the Supreme Court reversed the Knesset's um, law. The Knesset passed a law recently, together with the uh, Haredi members of the coalition, to undo the law that Yair Lapid did uh, in the previous Knesset, and that law basically said that anyone who's studying Torah in a recognized yeshiva has a deferment from the army, and all you have to do is go and register with the uh, draft board, and, uh, and and your service will be deferred. And there was a lot of, um, within the Haredi world, there was some uh, dispute about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing and so forth, that's irrelevant for now. In the meantime, the Supreme Court in Israel, which oftentimes um, decides that it is not only the judicial branch, but but also the legislative branch, um, it undid the law. It said that the law is not um, not within the proper rules of um, non-discriminatory practices, meaning the law discriminates against one group over another, um, that the Haredi group can just sign that they're studying Torah and they'll be exempt, while other groups that might have other things that they find to be important, obviously we find Torah to be important, but other groups that find other things important can't can't, um, avail themselves of such a deferment, and they have to... uh, 
serve. So the high court uh, sent the law back to the government and, and to the Knesset, which is the, the, the Knesset is the legislative branch, but the government is the one who sort of um, initiates the legislation and then brings it to the Knesset. So um, sent it back to the government and the Knesset and said, you have to come back. You have one year. This was about a week ago, week and a half ago. You have one year to get back to us with a law that is acceptable. This whole issue is a bigger issue. We won't talk about it now, about the um, activist court that um, Chief Justice Aharon Barak started uh, decades ago and how the court sees itself as, as being higher than the Knesset, but the people didn't, didn't elect the court. The people elected the Knesset, and uh, it's the Knesset who's trying to do the people's will, and the court is... Um, Oftentimes, this is not the first time, and surely won't be the last time, the court overturns laws that the uh, Knesset passed. Anyway, um, as a result, if if you don't go, and um, if you're studying Torah and Yeshiva, and you don't go to the draft board to register, then you could be arrested, and in fact, the grandson of the Toldot Avram Yitzchak who is an anti-Zionist Rebbe in Meisharim? His grandson was arrested, and that kicked off a major riot in Yerushalayim of Haredim, a protest. Well, that protest turned violent, and we have uh, clips that I saw yesterday on the Israeli news. Israeli news channel two, especially Yediot Achronot, they they cannot be accused of being. <laughs> pro Haredi, I would say just the opposite is true. And yet, both Yediot Achronot and Channel 2 News featured this, the Channel 2 uh, television news featured this as the first item in their newscast, and Yediot Achronot had it on its front page with a huge picture of uh, police using, I mean, excessive force is an understatement. The, the violence that the police exhibited yesterday toward the Haredim is sickening. It's sickening, it's unexcusable, and uh, it has to be condemned from every play, every, from every um, status, every level of Israeli society, from the Prime Minister down, it should be condemned, it should be investigated, they claim it will be, and the police in Israel have to know, like the police everywhere else, that there's no, they can't do whatever they want anymore. I don't think police are getting used to that. Um, there are cameras everywhere, and every person is carrying a camera. Every person is a camera now. So the police can't just do what they want. So I, I find it important, as we've discussed the issues of the draft and so forth, to to be one of those who's, who says very forcefully and adamantly what happened yesterday in Israel was a horrific, horrific scene of police beating Haredi protesters, it's very clear that some of the beatings were going on unprovoked. I mean, you could literally see a Haredi person just standing and and yelling, and the police go over and push him to the ground. There were others that were on the ground already, crouched on the ground or in a fetal position on the ground. Obviously, they were hurt. And the police come over and just kick them. This is... It's sickening. It's vile. If it would happen anywhere else in the world, we would be yelling and screaming anti-Semitism. 
So we have to know that this happened. You know that uh, I usually am siding with, uh, let's say, oftentimes I should say I'm siding with uh, the Israeli authorities. But the video here, and again, video sometimes could be um, misleading. You only see one piece of the video. You don't see it in context. But it would seem, based on everything that we did see, and there was a lot of video, it would seem hard to explain what um, justified the kind of violence that the Israeli police used yesterday. So that's my, what they call, my protest um, publicly, even though I don't live in Israel, I think that this is something that no Jew can tolerate anywhere in the world. We're going to go to L'cha Elitishu Kati. It is the opening pizmon, the opening piyut for, um, I don't know, about half of uh, Kal Yisrael. Written by Avram Ibn Ezra, if I remember correctly. This is uh, just a beautiful, haunting um, cover of it. No, it's not a cover, actually. It's a beautiful, haunting uh, performance of the uh, of the song by uh, Yoni Genut. I uh, introduced it about a year ago, and I haven't stopped listening to it myself. Um one of the few Jewish music songs that I know that includes bagpipes, although, yes, people have called my attention to the fact that there are others, but that's really a side point. The, 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 the main point is it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. I hope you like it. It's, uh, it's one of those piyutim um, that the Ashkenazi world probably uh, 100 years ago wasn't even aware of, but today we all can share the beautiful piyutim on either side of our Nuschaot. My name is Mayor Weingarten. Here is Yoni Genot, L'chaili Tishukati, on The Israel Show. We are on the Nachum Siegel Network. ואהבתי לך, ליבי וחיליותיי. לך רוחי ונשמתי. לך ידיי, לך רגליי. וממחי תכונתי.
Yoni Genud off the album Dabere Laibe Adamit The Pizmon I don't know if I presented it correctly before so I'll present it correctly now that is recited by Eidot HaMizrach our, our brethren who comprise half of Am Yisrael <laughs> the uh, Sephardic world begins their Yom Kippur liturgy with this um with this piyut l'cha'ili my desire is to you, my God, avati. I, I, you are my love, and l'cha'li um, bivichiliotai, my heart, my, my innards, is to you, l'cha'uchivinishmati, my soul and my spirit, l'cha'yadai l'cha'raglai, my hands, my legs, mimchahi techunati, everything that I am, is from you. My bones and my blood, and my skin with the rest of my body. And uh, a few more sentences there, and then he skips to the end uh, in the song. The 
organus, the light that has been set aside for the end of days should be for me, the, the mitpalel, the person who's saying this, it should be my sukkah, the place where I dwell, and sitri, the place where I hide. V'tachat tzel knafecha tinana et mechitzati. Please allow me to live, to be b'mechitza in, in, in the area that is protected under your wings. That is, um, it seems that there is a dispute, whether it's Ibn Ezra or, or Yehuda Halevi, um, whoever. Beautiful words to put us in the spirit of the Yamim Noraim. We started last week a story of uh, Israel's search for Nazi high-ranking Nazi officers in the 1950s and 1960s. We spoke about the fact that two of the big names, the biggest names that Israel was aware of that were still alive and had um, fled justice, the two big names were were Eichmann and Mengele. Eichmann is said to have been the architect of the final solution, especially for Hungarian Jews. Mengele was called the Angel of Death by the uh, residents of Auschwitz, where he was a doctor. He was one of the people that did the selection, the selectia, as uh, the Jewish cattle cars came filled with Jews. He would point to the right or to the left. The ones to the left went straight to the guest chambers and to the crematoria. The right to the ones to the right went to work or to his laboratory, he used Auschwitz as a medical laboratory, so to speak, quote-unquote laboratory, in which he did horrific and vile experiments, blood-curling experiments on on Jews as human guinea pigs. It's just beyond comprehension. Uh, So these were the two main Nazis that Israel wanted to find. There were many Nazis that were given refuge in South America and different South American countries, Paraguay, Brazil, Argentina, all gave high-ranking Nazis safe haven after, uh, after the war. It's just, uh, it, it's unbelievable. Knowing what these people did, th- imagine the level of the anti-Semitism of the South American governments. And they did this in collusion with sometimes the Red Cross, sometimes the Catholic Church, who helped the Germans escape from Europe and get them, you know, false papers, whatever, to uh, to South America. So, we left off last uh, week where, and you can go back to the archives and listen to it whenever you want, we left off, we were discussing how I, when Eichmann was captured by the Mossad in the 60-61, um, He gave them information about Mengele. That's what their their next focus would be. And he told them where he lived. But Mengele, as we mentioned, was already gone. Because in within the circles of the high-ranking Nazis in South America, there was a group, it was called Odessa. There's a book called The Odessa File. It is, it's a lot of fiction, but there was, in fact... That is not fiction. There was such a group, an organization called Odessa, where 
high-ranking Nazis helped each other in, in whatever ways they needed to. So the word got out that Eichmann was captured. Everybody from this Odessa group understood that this was the Jews, the Israelis, who captured him. And so from that moment on, they were all, for the rest of their lives, thank God, these high-ranking Nazis were just petrified of being captured by the Israelis, and they fled. And they were on the run for most of their lives, always worried that the Israelis will find them. Um, in the 1960s, the uh, the German-Jewish prosecutor uh, Bauer, who actually is the one who gave the first lead to finding Eichmann, gave them a lead to find Mengele. What was the lead? This is fascinating. The Mengele family owned a very successful factory. They made agricultural machines, machinery. This factory worked all the time throughout the Holocaust, after the Holocaust. In fact, if you do a Google search on Mengele um, uh, factory, Mengele products, Mengele something in Germany, it'll come up. It, it sort of lately is already not... I, I don't think it's still around, but until very recently, this company that belonged to the Mengele family, and of which Yosef Mengele was a partner, were very successful, and they, all the family members who were involved in this factory, would send money to Mengele on a regular basis, and that allowed him to sustain himself throughout all these years. He didn't have to work, unlike Eichmann, who did, who went, uh, who worked in a, um, a factory. Mengele could just take it easy and hide, run away from place to place. The controller of this factory, of the Mengele production company, his name was Heinz Zedelmeier, he would go from time to time to South America with envelopes of cash and hand them to Joseph Mengele. It's astounding. We're talking about the 60s, parts of the 70s, that this went on. For whatever reason, the Mossad didn't follow up on that lead. Had they followed up on that lead in the 60s, they would have caught him probably, but they did not. And at some point, they, they were looking in different places, they followed different leads. And in July of 1962, so that's not too long after Eichmann, they came upon a farm in Brazil in some, like Iranidach, some godforsaken uh, place outside of Sao Paulo. And the Mossad team that was there couldn't get too close, but from afar, they believed that they observed a group of people, and amongst them was Mengele. And they were ecstatic. Tzvi Malchin, who is the guy who captured Eichmann, Tzvi Aharoni, who is the guy who identified Eichmann, were both involved. They both said that's most likely him. In fact, there's a, <laughs> there's, it's unbelievable, there's a, there's a um, legend 
don't know if it's true or not, there's a legend that Tzvi Malchin, who, who um, was a son of Holocaust survivors, when he looked through the um, binoculars and saw this person, he whispered in the, into the uh, communication system that they had between them in Yiddish, Das is er, mirhobin im gefunin. That's him. We found him, dem kleiner drek. So, um, it's horrible. This little horrible person, I guess, is would be one way to translate it. So they sent a cable to the Mossad headquarters, saying, "Okay, we we're pretty sure we got him." And they were convinced, this Mossad group, small group of Mossad agents, that they'll get the okay from headquarters, they'll kidnap him like they did with Eichmann, and bring him to justice. But the surprising answer that they got back was, don't do anything. No additional action should be taken in that area until we are able to whatever, whatever. Later on, this is revealed in the file, and this is the best uh, guess, so to speak, of Ronen Bergman, who's a very well-regarded intelligence intelligence analyst and writer uh, in Israel. It is believed that the reason that this happened, why would Israel let go of, of Mengele? It doesn't make sense. They were right there. They literally had him. And later on, by the way, they had a little doubt. They weren't 100% sure. But later on, it would come, come uh, to be known that, yes, it was him. That was him. It, he, that's where he was hiding. Well, it turns out that around that very day that they got this telegram in Mossad headquarters, another event happened. It was a big scandal in Israeli intelligence circles when it was discovered that Egypt had taken German scientists and had them develop missiles that would be able to hit Israel. And the Mossad didn't know about it. And when when Egypt uncovered it, the Mossad was terribly embarrassed. And they were accused of, hey, we're, what are you doing? You're asleep at the switch. What's going on? And so, as it would happen, the Mossad heads said, if we now announce, if we give the okay for them to kidnap Mengele and bring him here, people will say, oh, you're busy hunting Nazis and as a result, you've lost your focus on what you should be focusing on, which is the security of the, of the people of Israel and the state of Israel. They would be humiliated, and at the same time, the Mossad also felt maybe this was a wake-up call, that they were devoting too, too many resources to Nazi hunting and not enough resources to taking care of the uh, domestic agenda. Is that a right thing to do, a wrong thing to do? That's, that's a moral call, but a decision, but also a practical decision. 
the people who are responsible for the security of Israel have to take a decision. If I have the option of bringing Nazi criminals, high-level high, high Nazi criminals, to justice versus defending the future of the state of Israel, I think most people would agree that we have to defend the future, and if we can, we'll also bring the past to, the ju- to justice. And so, from that point on, the Nazi hunting in the Mossad really went, went to sleep, so to speak. When they, but, but it became not the most important thing. It didn't have top level um, on the agenda. And that continued for quite a while until Menachem Begin was elected in 1977, knowing the background of Menachem Begin, whose family was killed in the Holocaust, and who himself ran away from uh, the Nazis and uh, his passion. He asked, he commanded that the Mossad continue their search for Mengele. And we'll we'll continue this story after a musical break. Last week we introduced an album that is in the works called... um, Let's see, what's the name of the album? I think it's Hat. Oh, Bishabat Yizriku. Ulai Bishabat Yizriku Sukariot. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the album. Yes, Ulai Bishabat Yizriku Sukariot is the name of the album. It is based, the songs are based on the words of Uri Orbach Zichronoli Vracha, who wrote several children's books for the religious uh, world, for religious kids. Last week we debuted one of the songs, and this week we're going to debut another. There are three songs out there. The album is still in the works. There's a Head Start project for it. And this is called Hatfilot Shel Kulano. I'll read the words to you, just short and sweet. Hatfilot Shel Sfaradim, the prayers of those that are Sfaradim, the Bnei Eidot HaMizrach. Hatfilot Shel Ashkenazim, the davening, the tefillot of Ashkenazim. Hatfilot shel kol ayudim, the prayers of all Jews. Olot lashamayim, kemo malachim, they ascend to heaven like angels. Umityatzvot sham yachad, and there, up in heaven, all these tefillot, all these prayers, present themselves together, im shar hanusachim, with all the other types of prayers. That means there's Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, but there's also probably some mixed Nusachim and so forth. So all the other Nusachim, the Sahari, whatever, they all stand together. And God accepts immediately all of the Tfilot. And he doesn't ask the children who who said these prayers, where was your father born? Meaning, prayers of everybody, of every nusach, of every um, background, and Eida, they're all standing before God together. And God doesn't care which Eida you belong to, where your father was born, what your yichus is. All the tefillot stand there in Shemayim together. Uh, Daniel Zamir, David Daor, Golana Zulai, they all join in singing this um, these um, composi- this composition of the words by Uri Orbach from 
the uh, children's book. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Atilot shel Ashkenazim, atilot shel kol Yehudim, ulot l'shamayim kemo malachim u'mitzvot sham yachad, imshal anosachim. It's such a great idea to um, write tunes to the words of Uri Orbach's children's books and put them out on a CD that they're working on. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Okay, we're going to try and wrap up the story of the uh, search for Mengele. It's like a spy novel. This is like could be a James Bond, you know, episode, uh, movie, whatever. They. When Menachem Begin was elected, Israel yet again started up the uh, search for Yosef Mengele, and they trailed all kinds of people that they thought would bring them to Mengele. They tapped the phone of his son, of his wife, of anybody that they could figure would lead them there. They had, they they were following friends of his. 
they had all kinds of crazy ideas of, of how to get through to him. In, um, in 81, Begin is pressuring the Mossad. What's going on with Mengele? And so they come up with new ideas and new tactics in order to try and find out where he is. Well, what's amazing is that for about four to five years, the Mossad was looking for a ghost. Turns out that Mengele suffered a stroke while swimming at a vacation resort in Brazil. He was swimming in the ocean, suffered a stroke. The people that were with him, friends of his, swam out and brought him in, but he was dead by the time he got to the shore. That happened on February 7th, 1979. And here in 80 and 81, they're looking for him. They're turning the world upside down to find him. What they did find was the Brazil, the Brazilian government and probably the Mossad was involved also, in 1985, based on information that they bought, they paid the family that was watching over Mengele and helping him, they paid them a lot of money to come and give testimony to the Mossad so the Mossad could finally know what's going on. And they told them that uh, this is what happened and that he was buried under an assumed name and they told them where the burial place was. The Brazilian government dug up the grave. Here's a very gruesome picture of uh, the, the, um, the skull that they dug up, Mengele's skull. There was, in those days, DNA was still pretty new, but they took a basic DNA test and were able to confirm that, in fact, the person in that grave was Joseph Mengele. And so, it ended, the hunt for Mengele didn't end until the 80s, the mid-80s, and yet, he was dead in early 1979. You know, what is interesting, that his son, Rolf, actually appeared in public in an interview, and we have two clips. One is, and this is from the Donahue Show. It goes back many years. Found it online. I'll try and post the um, link to it so that you could see the entire interview if you're interested. So he appears there together with a person who's writing, uh, who wrote a book about Mengele, a Nazi, uh, somebody who's a, a Nazi hunter by the name of Posner. And Ralph Mengele agrees to appear with him on, uh, on this show. It's the only time that he appeared on American television, it seems. And they asked him, like, you knew where your father was. And he did. He knew where his father was. He went to visit him one time. His father never admitted to any guilt in anything. 
which is pretty, I guess, not shocking. I did what I was told to do. I didn't invent the, the concentration camps. I didn't, uh, I, I, I worked at Auschwitz. Auschwitz was there before I got there. I didn't, uh, I didn't um, build it, blah, 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 blah. So they ask Mengele Jr., Ralph Mengele, why didn't he tell somebody where his father was? Here's his reply. At the end, I decided to see once this man in South America, what was not very easy for me to go there and not to be followed up by uh, hunters. I decided it as a personal challenge to have the opportunity to have the evidence if this all is right, what he is alleged to be done or not. I did nothing. What you can say, I did not tell his hunters where he is. That you, you agree that you did not do that? Yes. So what you and did was, an, was uh, you committed an act of and omission. I would never, and I would do it again like this. I would never betray my father. Never. And I have no, no one in the world can ask this uh, to do me. No one in the world can ask me to do that, is what he was trying to say. So he wouldn't betray his father. That's what he says. And he went to visit him once to find out the truth. So when he found out the truth, that his father was a sadistic murderer, an evil person, a Nazi, who tortured humans, especially Jews, he, what did he do? Nothing. He just kept quiet. He said, I'll never... But later on in the show, Posner, the author, says to him, that's not true, because you also took money to him. He was one of the people that one time that he went, he was a courier to take money. So his like innocence of how he had this terrible conflict, how could I rat out my father... So I, I kept quiet. That's not really the whole story. Now, later on in the show, he's asked, but wait a minute. When your father died, you knew he was dead. Yes, he did. He knew he died. And he went to uh, Brazil and took his diaries and took all his personal effects if he reviled what his father did, why is he doing this? I don't know. But, okay, I think they burnt the diaries. Probably because they were very incriminating. He's asked, why don't you tell the world he's dead? Stop looking for him. Right? The world is expending, especially Israel, though, but Germany as well, the world is expending time and energy looking for him. Why don't you tell them he's dead? You're looking for somebody that has now passed away. Why then, when he was dead, okay, you didn't come out and announce point, it? this is a point, but you have... Uh, I talked with these people who, at the end, helped him uh, to be hiding in, in South America. They wrote me the letter. He is dead now. I, I went there once again in 79, took his diaries, took uh, just the, the belongings of him, and they told me, please don't tell anybody he is dead now because they want to, to ruin our life. They will run after us. So uh, I was in the, in the next conflict. I who, had they will run after us. Who? The people who, with whom he lived or the yes, family? Yes. The, the people, people with whom he lived? Uh, yes. See, what it comes down the to. The Bossards and the Stamats in Sao Paulo. They said, please, one, we beg you, don't tell anybody. 
He mentions two names there. One of them was the one that I told you that uh, the Israelis paid a lot of money for them to come and testify and give information. They wouldn't come on their own. Um, both the Bossart family. Um, so, so first he has a conflict because he doesn't want to rat out his father. But then it turns into, well, you know, they pleaded with me not to tell on them because they, you know, they're going to be hounded. Who? The Israelis are going to find them and bring them to justice. Oh, so now he's part of the bigger conspiracy. It's not just that he's, he's uh, covering up for his father. Now he's covering up for the people who protected his father. And in order to save them the anguish, quote-unquote, of being chased by justice... He allows for four or five years the Germans and the Israelis and others to expend time, money, looking for someone who he knows is dead. Oh no, not a paragon of anything good, that's for sure. He's not a sadistic murderer. But you can see that he doesn't revile what his father did and he doesn't revile his father even though he seems to indicate that he did we can't trust we can't trust people Carl Mengele and Sons factory continued operating for decades after World War II and continually sent money to Josef Mengele. The son, knowing full well his crimes, covered up for him, never revealed his hiding place, covered up for those people who hid him. The governments of Brazil, the government of Argentina, the government of um, of Paraguay, they all knew and didn't say anything. Because, frankly, even though they didn't kill Jews, they didn't mind too much that others did. And so, we have to rely on the Ribono Shalom, and we have to rely on ourselves. And hence, to think that maybe 15 years after the Holocaust was over, the state of Israel was able to capture Eichmann is is amazing. And to think that the state of Israel has a nuclear weapon that hopes never to use, has a strong army, an amazing air force, an amazing intelligence community operation. It's all... um, it's all miraculous in and of itself. These are all miracles in and of itself. And um, as we reach the end of 5777 and we begin 5778, we have much to worry about. Tonight, uh, this afternoon, uh, um, President Trump will be meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu. 
the issue of the Iran nuclear situation is going to be front and center, and later on, I believe later on today also, um, either today or tomorrow, Prime Minister Netanyahu will speak to UN. It's always great to hear him. He does that amazingly well. There's a lot to worry about, and there's a tremendous amount to be thankful for. So that's what we have to do. No al avar. We say thank you for everything that we have for the past. We pray to the one above that the future bring with it good news for each and every one of us and for the Jewish people as a whole. I take the opportunity to wish all the listeners, all of you who have been very supportive over the last four plus years of uh, the show, so many of you write in, email, comment on the Facebook page, comment on the app during the show. It is very appreciated, it is greatly appreciated. I thank you for your feedback, even if it's criticism. That's how I learn what you like and what you don't like. And I encourage you to email me, Mayor at Nach, M-E-I-R, Mayor, M-E-I-R, Mayor at NachumSiegel.com, Mayor at NachumSiegel.com. I can't thank you enough for uh, making uh, this show popular. And I just pray that God will give me the energy and the time and the ability to continue bringing the word of the state of Israel, of the land of Israel, of the people of Israel, good news and the bad news, the history and the future and the present, continue to do so week after week. Mirzah Hashem, wishing everybody a Shana Tova Umetuka. And I thought that a nice ending for this show would be Naomi Shemer's Al Kol Eile, that we thank God and we ask God to preserve everything, the good and the bad, the dvash, the honey, al haoketz, the sting of the bee. The bee that creates the honey has a sting, but also creates the honey. So there's the bitter and the sweet. And we ask God to sustain everything in the world, the good and the bad, and we accept all of it. Yossi Banai sings, this is the original version of the song, and we wish everybody that God, in fact, will watch over us and will continue to bless us. There's good, there's bad, but ultimately it's all from God. Coming up on the Nachum Siegel Network, Yoni Pollock with After Further Review, new show covering the latest in the world of sports, followed by encore presentation of headlines with David Lichtenstein, and then the great Monday Music Marathon. Until next Monday, immediately following James and the AM, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you that nice guys do not finish last. Oh no, they're just running in a different race. Advash ve al haoket, al amar ve hamatok, al bitenu hatinoket shmoreli hatok, al aeshame boeret, al amayim azakim, al aish.